Hello, it's Alan here. Welcome to the Sobremesa podcast. Owen isn't with me again this week, but we do have an interview from him. What have I been up to? Well, not a lot, to be honest. Here in Spain, we've had our second heat wave, or at the beginning of our second heat wave, and it's not even the middle of July yet. Over 40 degrees every day in in, uh, in Madrid. So, I've also been trying to avoid putting the air conditioning on because electricity is very expensive. So, it's either die of heat exhaustion or pay for a lot of electricity. But, whilst staying out of the sun, I have had the chance to watch uh, Parallel Mothers, which is the name of the English translation, uh, the new Amalilba film, uh, was brought out. And it's very interesting. It's linked to our next couple of episodes and uh, one of the new laws coming out in Spain. Uh, and I won't ruin the film for you. It's a typically Almodovar bit surreal story, but it also incorporates um, issues that are related to memory in Spain, which are obviously very controversial, as they would be in any country with which has had a civil war and following on from that civil war a dictatorship for till 1975 and I think in the film alongside the typically Almodovarish uh, plot are some great scenes uh, where you, you rec- if you've lived in Spain for any time you will recognise some of these, these clashes uh, that you see or hear from time to time so I really do recommend it but this week's guest is sociologist Nicole Iturriaga, and she has written a book called Exhuming Violent Histories, Forensics, Memory and Rewriting Spain's Past. The book looks uh, or provides a detailed case study of Spain's best-known historical memory association, the Association for the Recovery of Historical Memory, which since 2000 has been responsible for exhuming many of Spain's Franco-era mass graves. In the book, Nicole argues that part of the association's success has been due to its depoliticized approach using forensic science and family testimony rather than overtly political arguments to force the issue of Franco estate terror back onto the public agenda. I hope you enjoy the interview. You begin your book by telling, telling the story, I think, of your, your second exhumation and how you were, you were given the task of uncovering one of the victim's feet. Yeah. I mean, how, I was wondering, can you t- talk a little bit about this story and how does that fit in with your own personal experiences of, of the historical memory movement in Spain? Um, well, it was my second exhumation. It was down in Andalusia um, in, a, in a small, very small village um, on the outskirts, really. And um, the the association um, really encourages, like you know, they they bring in volunteers, you know, who don't have any technical background, but they give you a, a pretty extensive crash course. But they they usually have you doing things that are kind of hard to to mess up. Um, and feet was um, I guess deemed a little easier. Um, so like the harder areas were given to the more experted uh, volunteers. So I was uh, working on on this woman's feet, and I guess for me, like she really became embodied as a person in that moment because it, it I, the soles of the shoes were still there. Um, and, and in the in the book, you can actually see this um, grave and these people. That's the first picture. Um, so the soles of the shoes were there, and one of the the other people in the graves' shoes were made out of tires. 
Um, so okay. they were they were farm workers, and so these were shoes that were yeah. were you know functional, like you know, yeah. Ripper, you can see the thread of the tire that was used as the shoe. Um, and I guess for me, and I was looking at her feet and working on them, I was trying so hard not to break anything or scratch anything. And um, I guess just being that that close, because we were all more or less lying down on our stomachs while working on on these people. A lot of people will will do that sort of position. Yeah. And so it's like you're really close to yeah. another person in this extremely intimate way. Yeah. I mean, I don't th- I can't think of really anything more intimate than uncovering someone else's skeleton. And then realizing that their feet are your feet, if so to speak, and being like, and I, I had this moment where I like literally put my shoe up against like right next to her foot, not where I could damage the skeleton or anything, just to see for size. And then I like sort of laid lengthwise. And I, I think the rest of the team was like, what are you doing? <laughs> but, and then I realized like, oh, this is exactly what my skeleton would look like. Like I am looking at a version of myself and it was really intense and I felt really connected to this woman. And while we were um, uncovering or like excavating the body, um, locals would come, like people from the village nearby would, would come and visit and they wanted to see. Um, and this is before they invited the whole village to come and do one of the classes at the foot of the grave led by the, the lead archeologist. So this was just like a trickle of people would come and like they would talk about who they thought this was or what the you know the stories that people had heard about you know Rosa and her family um and how she was said to be eight months pregnant and so then I'm like imagining myself not that I've ever been pregnant but like imagining myself in in that vulnerable of a situation of where you're eight months pregnant you're you can't run you know like you're coming and she had um what we found on her was one of these old Spanish combs on the top like you know from and, and that one red earring was on her ear and like the ballistics guy said they had found um, a lipstick case. Mm-hmm. That's lipstick case and bullet casings is where they found that area. And that's why they searched there first. And so I was just, I just had this, a very intense visceral embodied image of a person that could have very well have been me in this like horrific situation of state violence and just like, what terror that must have been in those last moments of life. And I think that, I mean, that it wasn't just me who was incredibly touched by this particular exhumation, pretty much everyone who was at that one, at one point or another had to leave the site to go have a moment, Yeah, you know, because it was just so intense. And it was so, and so the, the soil in that part of Spain is really good for conserving bones well this was an incredibly well-preserved grave um so everything was very obvious and the thing about like and i say this in the book the thing about mass graves unless you've ever seen one is like it is exactly how they've been left you don't have to like imagine really anything they're exactly how they were left unless they were disturbed so you can really imagine these last moments pretty viscerally and so to then have the additional information of this is your body (laughs) or at least like what could be you know if you were no longer fleshed like this is you in the ground it's it's incredibly intense and painful um and i think there's just a lot of empathy that can come from seeing a a mass grave which is why i think they're so powerful and why the association invites so many people to come see them or in their um they also do exhibitions where they have a, a picture of one of the longest mass graves found in Spain that they put down on the floor 
so you can walk alongside oh, it wow. as though you're in a mask like yeah. looking at one and because it, it really is hard to replicate the intensity of that well it does i mean you know you see you see in the spanish news every month that there's there's exhumations taking place in you know different parts of the country and i think one of the interesting things in your research you, you talk about is the sort of pedagogical element to these exhumations how they seek to engage the local communities and i guess you know as you were saying exp explain the the backstories the history and maybe introduce sort of counter memories or alternative frameworks for for interpreting these events um can you talk about this 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 element to the exhumations not just it's not it, you know it's not just a scientific effort but it's it has has this other other purpose to it Oh, absolutely. I would actually say this is probably, I mean, outside of the recovery of the remains yeah. in a scientific way, like the second most important thing is the pedagogical aspect, in, in my opinion, and just watching it, you know, people are, are interested, yeah. even and, and like, and this village in particular was very invested in the association, they have a long background of leftist activism, um, they were terribly repressed. But like even in places like Galicia, that is historically pretty conservative, people would wander by, you know, like they know the stories. Of, I mean, this is the difference between other places where there's been disappearances. Most people in Spanish villages have heard stories or have an idea, a general sense of okay. where a mass grave is or, you know, who's in them, what happened in some some variation or another. So like if you see people with excavators, you're like, what are they doing over there? And also just like villages in Spain in general, rural areas, they're like, oh, something new is interesting. <laughs> Let's yeah. go see what's happening. Um, yeah, so like people want to know what's going on, even if they're technically conservative or like anti-exhumations, yeah. they still want to know what you're doing and they want to see it. And then it's a really great opening for saying yeah. like, well, when we show you what we're doing, or at least explain to you what we're doing. Um, so curiosity, I think, beats out ideology a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and so the association will use this, and, and not just the association, but other um, groups who are doing this um, exhumations as well, like Aranzadi, um, the teaching of the classes, I think actually originated there and has right. sort of trickled down. Um, but invite the local community to come and see the technical work, explain the technical work as a starting point. So you start yeah. with the science and then you lead into like, and here's what we know historically what happened. And usually if it's people from the local community, they know more details and they'll tend to jump in like, oh, and this stop in there. Like, like Rosa, like no one knew that she was pregnant from the team. That information came from the local community um, of people who just knew the story. And then from there, they lead into sort of trickling in critiques of the state of like, you know, this is all paid for by private donation like the family okay. doesn't pay for it the state has and no interest in this like we have to get our dna testing done in argentina because no one in spain will do it so it's like there's this slight trickling in sprinkling of critique it's very light it's never like you know so some in the past in the previous because it started in 2000 other groups were much more explicitly political hmm. and they have moved away from exhumations because it's extremely expensive <laughs> Okay. Um, and with the conservative government that led for in 2011 to 2019, like 18, they were anti-exhumation, anti-helping at all. The memory law originally had a little bit of money, not enough, but like something that ended for that whole period. So anybody who couldn't support themselves were out. But also if you're 
if you were pushing a, a political message, like this one, one group wouldn't, were very associated with the communist party, they'd fly communist party flags. Like th that didn't go over so well Yeah. as this is just like, Hey, we're just scientists, but like, can we talk to you? And then also while we're talking to you, tell you a story that's maybe slightly different in terms of like, like with Rosa, like being like the state decided that this woman should be summarily executed at eight months pregnant. What kind of threat was she? Like she wasn't a gorilla. She wasn't fighting back. Yeah. Like she did she need to be executed with her entire family? And did she need to stay in a mass grave for almost 80 years? You know, did the, the school system need to teach that these people were evil Marxists who deserved what they got? Yeah. You know, that's the sort of like, and, and it's really intense when you're hearing these sort of like rhetorical questions and getting information about how obstinate the state has been while you're looking at the skeletonized remains of the people who've been murdered. Yeah. And the thing about, um, like I said, with mass graves, like these, a lot of these people were shot to death. So you can see violence on the remains. Not so much in that one because the pressure of the ground did a lot of damage to the craniums. So you couldn't really tell where the, the entry and exit wounds were. But in other exhumations I've been in, you can see very clearly uh, entry and exit wounds in the skulls, um, bullet holes in, or like um, broken bones from torture, um, things like that. So yeah. you can actually very visibly see state violence on the body while you're being told a story of how this was unjustified state terror that has continued into the democracy, uh, that the democracy was founded upon silence and making sure that these people stay like the status quo of the Franco regime maintained through the democracy, which included keeping so many hundreds of thousands of people in graves and then hitting the like the biggest mass graves, unmarked graves that are littering the countryside yeah. while their families wait for them. And I think that's the thing that they hit the hardest is that regardless of politics, every family, every person has the right to bury their dead. And I think yeah. that hits really, really intensely in a Catholic country. But I, I would argue basically anywhere, it's almost a cultural universal. Everybody has death rituals. Most people want their loved ones to be buried with in their religious and cultural beliefs. And I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say most people would be uncomfortable with having their loved ones, even if they never knew them in life, buried alongside a highway yeah. in a ditch. So and I think I think most people would feel uncomfortable even in a in a war situation that your enemy would be denied those type of rights as well. I mean I think it's you know it's it, it is that like I mean um and it is an uncomfortable fact I guess for a lot of people in Spain that it, I think is that after Cambodia they had the highest number of disappeared people um in mass graves in any country yeah. in the world and in that sense i mean you talk i guess about the uniqueness of the spanish case, case in the sense that you're not it wasn't dealing with the recent past that there's yeah. a sort of generational gap here and as you as you said yeah the transition perpetuated the sort of marginalization of these victims and so i was wondering can you talk a little bit about that like the, in particular the relationship between the historical memory movements which i guess began in Spain around around the turn of the century in two, 2000, you know, the, its relationship with similar human human rights, historical justice movements in Latin America, you know, you, I think you described that, that they piggybacked on the on these movements. But at the same time, you know, there is that difference. You know, like in, in Latin America, they came, you know, sort of the decade after the fall of 
dictatorships was quite it was quite immediate. Whereas in Spain, you have this generational gap. And what does that mean for for the questions of historical justice in Spain? Yes, Spain is such an interesting case um, because of their distance between the violence, the actual violence, even the violence of the dictatorship. Yeah. You know, Franco died in 75 and this didn't really, the first excavation was in 2000. So there's like a substantial amount of time. Um, and I think that is reflective of where they fit in the timeline of how we understand transitional justice. Um, so when, you know, when Spain transitioned in 75, well, 78 to 80 in that area, he died, Eta had executed, well, blew up the yeah. successor <laughs> that had been set up. So it was like, Spain was sort of like, oh no, we don't have anybody. I guess we'll be a democracy now. It's terrible. Um, I, I, I just think of that joke about the, what is oh, it, the I know. Et, it's like the ETA space program. It's, you know, it's whenever I hear that. Um, Me anyway. too. I always say this like the, like one of the funnier Spanish dark jokes. Like yeah, dark humor. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, one, it's one thing I love about Spain. The, it's, it's very dark humor. I think, I don't know if you, if you follow that account, they have like the COVID virus has its own account in a Twitter account. It's, it's very, very dark, very good. Sorry. Anyway. Um, and the, it's, well, I was like slight tangent here where the private cemetery where Franco was buried actually has the remains of that guy. Um, Carrero Blanco. Blanco. Yeah. yeah, he's buried there as is Trujillo, the former dictator of okay. the Dominican Republic. It yeah. is a very weird <laughs> cemetery of like fascists. That whole, whole that bunch. whole area, that whole area sort of, was it like north northwest Madrid? Like it's very it's yeah, all, yeah. It all gets very. It's fashion. wild. I've been there, yeah. and I was walking around, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> this is a wild <laughs> place." Anyway, um, so Spain transition. It was lauded. It was held up as the way to transition, yeah. which was we don't talk about the past. We're just moving forward. You know, it also really maintained all of the structures and institutions and people of power, the power elite. And the superstructure yep. stayed completely the same. They just sort of switched over into democracy in quotes. Yeah. And that maintained stability. I, I mean, it's hard to know what the alternative would have been because that was seen as the way to transition. And then you get into the 80s, a little later into the 80s. I mean, um, for me, sorry, no, for me, the problem is more, I think it probably was a necessary transition in the sense that you, you had the sort of coercive institutions of the Franco estate yeah. remained intact, unlike Portugal. And so there was no, yes. you, in a sense, the, the pro-democracy movement could not, you cannot take on a sort of, you know, a vicious dictatorship directly, you know, it's, it's coercive Absolutely. apparatus. And so, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I guess it was a necessary form of transition, but the question then, of course, yeah, it's then held up as, as an example to follow. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why we didn't hold up Portugal's transition. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. I mean, that's it. Like, I mean, I think it happened under very different conditions. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, and has been as equally stable and yeah. something that I, it's funny. I feel like Portugal just always slips under the radar. Like people just forget or ignore in a way yeah. that they don't with Spain. And so like, for whatever reason, Spain was held up and Portugal wasn't in terms of how to transition. And you're absolutely right. At the entire superstructure of the regime maintain, how are you supposed to take on <laughs> a really powerful, violent, potentially, um, organization that is pervasive, all the top to bottom. And like there was the coup attempt in the 80s, but that was put down and that was seen as like, see, the democracy is going to last. But I think the problem also of maintaining the fascist superstructure of the previous regime into the democracy is this feeling that I kept hearing in my interviews, which is 
yeah, you know, you never know. <laughs> it could go back to the dictatorship and that's why we can't talk about it. You know, so like, and that that's the thing that they, they wove into the democracy. It's like, it's, it is stable, but not stable enough to be able to handle a conversation <laughs> about the past, which to me means it's not very stable. Yeah. Um, but then you get the 80s with, you know, 83 Argentina transitions back out of uh, you know, the military regime that was running it. And, you, and that's where you see the birth of this forensics-based human rights movement. It was immediate, but like it was so successful, it eventually led back to amnesty. So they had a moment of like, everyone's being held accountable. We're doing mass grave exhumations. We're identifying people. We've now discovered that children were stolen at birth. Um, but the military was so like, we will not be held accountable that they were like, all right, amnesty for everybody until 2000. And then you get South Africa in the early, you know, mid nineties with truth and reconciliation. So things are changing and evolving in the background outside of the Spanish context. So like Spain is off doing their thing, like transition, they're totally in silence. They're joining the EU. And all along the same timeline, you have Argentina, Chile, and then you have what out of Argentina, this movement of forensics that's just starting in the global South where they like sort of go around and they go to Guatemala, they go to, you know, Peru, Chile, Bolivia, you know, they go to all these countries, they start setting up all these labs. Bosnia, Herzegovina goes off and they go and start that lab. And then they go start one in Cyprus from the war there. And so like, they're slowly making their way into the global North. And, in, and by the time that um, Pinochet is arrested in the UK, um, and put under house arrest. And there's all these people who are variants, you know, I, I have a, my father's from Chile, like this was, was such a big deal yeah. <laughs> in 1998. Um, people are so upset on both sides. And in Spain, they're like, why aren't we, wait a minute, you know, like, why are we doing this? There's so many people here that could be held accountable. Um, and that led this, this really great question of like, why aren't we doing this here? Emilia Silva writes this article. And so I think you needed to have all this stuff happening on the same, you know, you have Spain just chugging along and everyone else is doing these things in the background or on in their own world. And then eventually the changing political legal structures of international human rights becoming much more powerful in the late 90s um, and having a judge who's decided to use universal jurisdiction in this way for the first time to hold a really egregious dictator who transitioned almost identically out of his power regime, like the Spanish one did, except he didn't die, um, and not be held accountable. You know, like he was a version of Franco in many ways, you know, very violent dictator, not held accountable in any way, transitioned the government almost identically in Chile, so it's like very parallel, Franco and, and Pinochet. Yeah. And then a judge who's like, I don't think so. Not this time. Granted, that does backfire against Baltasar Garson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think maybe we'll come to this later. But I mean, his his interpretation now, particularly of universal jurisdiction, seems to be pretty much written into the new historical memory law, which was in particular, you know, this is one of the, the main concessions the left have got from, from the Socialist Party is, is that the is sort of, the amnesty, the amnesty law won't be struck off the books, but it will be circumscribed for questions of, you know, crimes against humanity, crime, uh, war crimes, etc., which which can't be can't be subject to an amnesty. I get I, going back to your book. I mean, you were talk you talk 
quite interestingly about like how the how this historical memory movement tried to introduce two ma- I think you call it two master frameworks or two master yeah. framings the the rights of family and the depoliticized approach can you talk a little bit about, about that in particular I was quite interested in how you describe their approach in, as a depoliticized not an apolitical approach but a depoliticized approach yeah and I and they're taking those from the Argentinian team okay the Argentinian yeah case. Um, like and I and I think that has to do with just how successful the Argentinian team was, um, LAF or the the Argentine, the forensic anthropology team from Argentina, Argentine. Sorry, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't had my coffee yet. The Argentine forensic anthropology team, which goes by their Spanish acronym LAF, um, they found did this entire movement in the ashes of the dictatorship, and they they also were dealing in that same really intense hyper emotional space in that transition where like things are really intense and they found i think the most success going that depoliticized way because if you can just go listen this is just what the science says i don't know like you can be like i don't know what the politics are but obviously you do but like if you just go i never regardless of what the politics are in the situation this person died this way period and there's no wiggle room because in all of these cases, the state is saying one story and the science is saying the complete opposite. And that is really useful in terms of countering the narratives in the state. So in Argentina, a lot of times they'd say people died in shootouts. The forensic evidence proved that they were summarily executed within 30 centimeters. Like, and that's just how it is. <laughs> and that's, it's, that's, it's, it's, yeah, it's getting the, the facts straight, like the narrative and facts straight, introducing yeah. those. It, I sort of counter narratives to the the official official exactly. truth, official memory. Yeah. And that's why it's so powerful because the state normally has the ultimate authority. Because otherwise it's like, well, do you believe the police? Like, do you yeah. believe the state? You know, that's what it's written, that's what's written down in the file. So that's what it is, because the, the state has the power to write things down, and that's fact. Whereas, like in all of a sudden, human rights activists have these tools to say, well, the science doesn't agree. And in this case, this, and, and there is no political agenda associated with science. And you can argue that that has changed substantially since the 1980s, but I will push back and say, in the world of forensic science, it is still seen as unbiased. Hmm. Most people believe forensic science results. Most people believe in DNA testing. You know, like there are, there are certain types of science that still really, people still believe. And so in, in this case, by maintaining a depoliticized framing, you can say things like, this woman was eight months pregnant. She held no, she was no threat to the state. She was shot in the back of the head and buried in a shallow grave with her husband and her in-laws. And you can go, was that justified? Yeah. <laughs> You're not saying anything other than here's what the science said and then a really pointed rhetorical question. And you don't have to do a lot. And I think that's why that's so important is you don't really have to do anything other than say, this is what the science shows us. Yeah. You make your own decision on what that means. And I think that's really powerful. It's an extremely powerful tool. Um, It's also worked really, really powerfully in Argentina with the stolen children because the regime and the government that came after it denied that that even ever happened. So until they could prove this person was related to this person with blood testing, it didn't happen. And then all of a sudden it did happen because they were able to say, this little girl doesn't belong to the people she's living with biologically. And so then you get into, well, then how did she get there? 
And like, that's the sort of power of this. It's just what the science says. I don't know what to say about the political implications, but the science of the situation is this. And then when you couple that in terms of, well, in both cases really of living and dead disappeared people, um, what are the rights of the family members? And we were just talking about this a little bit before, like, do you have the human right to bury your loved one? Do you have the right to know what happened to your children, to your grandparents, to your grandchild? And if they're alive, do you have legal rights to them? Or even just to have a, a relationship with them before you die? In Spain, the people who would have known the direct victims are getting very old. Um, they're got to be in their 90s, right? Yeah. Um, the last exhumation I talk about in the book uh, has to do with Encencion Mendieta Alcala, who um, is the universal jurisdiction case, extremely famous out of Argentina. Um, all she wanted before she died was to find her dad. That was it. That was all she wanted. And that is very compelling. She's a little lady. She's super cute. She's extremely well-spoken. Yeah. All she's saying she wants, she's not asking for money. She's not asking for even an apology from the state. She's not asking for anything truly political, quote unquote. All she's saying she wants before she dies, this little abuela, is her father. <laughs> I think that is extremely compelling. I, who was to say like, no, he was an evil communist. He deserves what he got. That's really harsh. Like, I, I, and even I think the most staunch box politician would have a difficult time looking someone like that in the eye and saying, absolutely not. He deserved what he got. I, I guess the question is then, I mean, the, as, a, as a strategy, this seems to have worked. I mean, particularly in terms of um, you know, forcing these issues into the public sphere, et cetera. But is it as, a, as an, an initial step or, you know, particularly for that initial decade after 2000, it seemed, you know, it has changed the consensus. It's opened up these questions. I mean, I guess that's always the question then, isn't it? I mean, is because, for example, Emilio Silva, the, the founder of the um, ARMH, he, you know, I think, you know, he wants, you know, his, his demands go further than that. He he talks about, I guess, how, for example, in a sense, the victims of Francoism are 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 still second class victims in Spain. That they they should have the right, for example, um, police or you know state investigators should be at the scene. There should be court cases, and then there are just questions of actual justice and of legal redress. And you know, we we've talked about you know, I guess you know the sort of defrancoization of of the state. Then these you know these wider issues. Obviously, depoliticization can get you get you so far. Just opening up these issues and getting getting people to discuss the facts and etc but what what are the limits in that sense do you see or like where where yeah i mean i think i think the the power of that depoliticized approach and the rights of families approach is like it opens up a door that was yeah. previously closed or could be closing on you and so it's necessary in it's kind of how we were just talking about like was the spanish democratic transition necessary in the yeah. way that it went like you could go the politicized way. It's going to be, I think, a much harsher route. And especially in those immediate transition years where things yeah. are extremely volatile and just quickly shifting. Like, I think it's one of the things like, do you want to be right? Or do you want to have like success? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. You know? And so like in the beginning, I think it's necessary to like, 
relax people's fears in a way by taking that approach and like sort of going around it. And the, the depoliticized approach, I think I talk about is like, you're opening up an umbrella. <laughs> and then like, once you got it in the door, you can like fully open it. <laughs> and so like, I think now that we're 22 years past the start of this movement in Spain, these demands are, are evolving as they should. And they're also like the forensics movement in Spain has evolved a lot since it was just, you know, family members with one or two forensic anthropologists, you have like actual full teams or just professionals working in Paterna in the South. You have the Arnzati team that's developed out of, you know, San Sebastian. Like you have all these more professionalized groups who have taken this on. It's much more common to talk about this. Franco was exhumed. There's been so many things that have happened that I think it makes sense for someone like Emilia Silva to be like, okay, we actually really need to be talking about justice, justice. Yeah. You know, not just like in my book, I argue that exhumations, you know, funerals, things like that are a form of justice because I believe that they are a really important form of post-transitional justice in cases where amnesty exists. But I also believe that after a while of being successful with obtaining that, it is more than fair to actually go into justice, justice, like as we traditionally understand it, such as getting rid of the amnesty law, holding people accountable. I mean, a lot, I mean, there's also a lot of money in this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the amount of money and property that were seized from yeah. Republican families that were lost during that time, if, you know, held across how many generations of, you know, generational wealth also just being lost is tremendous. I don't know if the Spanish state can afford it, frankly, to pay back the amount of damage they did, intentional damage. I mean, it was really set up so that these, the Republicans would be second-class citizens and crushed economically, Yeah, you know, like... Or, you know, in the case where they withheld life-saving vaccines from the children of Reds, you know, and that they, I know someone who got polio from that and is on crutches. Like, where is the state? That person should probably be compensated for the lifelong damage that was done. Yeah. For example. But, you know, there are still so many, like, very basic things like the street signs, the monuments to fascism that are everywhere still and are in complete yeah. violation of the memory law. So I don't know, I kind of feel like maybe start with the things you said you would do. Yeah, right? no, exactly. I mean, that's, um, no, I mean, I, I nearly walked by the Franco's victory march in Moncloa nearly every day. So it's, you know, it's many a, a sunrise has been ruined by that, that monument. You know, it's, it's such a beautiful view. And then you just have this, this, this awful uh, fascist monument. One of the is interesting issues there, I mean, there is, I guess, for example, the Spanish journalist Antonio Maestre says in his book on um, the Francoist sort of capitalist class that one of the reasons why the, the economic elites have been so so stringent against the um, histor historical memory movement is they see it as, as the first step. I mean, if you if you let in these, even these very, you know, yeah, very common sense ideas of, of historical redress. I mean, if you if you if you bury the dead, if you dig them up as such, you you then leave yourself open to to wider questions. And you know, particularly, you know, when you look at the the Ibex 35, a lot of the major companies are, you know, have have their roots in you know in the Francoist era. And so, I mean, for example, in Germany, I think only in the sort of around the trend turn of the century there was a huge you know Volkswagen and various corporation yeah. German corporations had to had to give uh, reparations that ran into the billions and I guess part of part of it is I'd say 
you 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 fight the battle over street names and monuments so that you don't later have to fight over over your your own fortune as such absolutely yeah and i think that i mean that's talked about a lot in the historical memory circles yeah. is just like how much money yeah. we're talking about yeah. and money is very motivating <laughs> yeah. in terms yeah. of like trying and they have you know these corporations this political elite have the capital and the power to be obstructionist and to try and shut this down as opposed to just family organizations that are being held together by yearly donations you know like and and i think that is speaks to the the absolute credit that should be given to emilio silva and the other organizations of the historical memory movement is that they have successfully i think very successfully pushed this conversation yeah and to where we're, you know, talking about potentially changing how Spain understands amnesty with this new law. I mean, that's it's incredibly successful in terms of social movements. Yeah, that's no, great. definitely. No, exactly. I think, you know, I'd, I'd say particularly, I mean, you know, if you take a newspaper like El País, I, what their initial coverage would have been 20 years ago and what it is now or Cadena Cero, yeah, absolutely. particularly on the sort of, I mean, you know, obviously, if you go to the to the to the right, if you go to La Razón or ABC, I'm sure I'm sure it wouldn't be quite so obvious, but no, I think the the consensus, particularly in the progressive side in Spain, has has shifted quite radically. Obviously, it, you know, as a, as you know, part of the reaction to the success has been a culture war, particularly since the rise of Vox, since in particularly yeah. with with uh, the exhumation of Franco in the last sort of four or five years, and the rise of the extreme right with sort of you know post truth discourse, and you know, it's, it's, it's ability to use these questions to its own advantage. And I think some of the left now seem more hesitant to engage just because in a, in a sense, this is a, this is a culture war, which seems to work well for the right to, you know. Yeah. yeah, I think it works well for the right because it's been part of the narrative in Spain yeah. for over 40 years. It's like, a, it's, it's an old school hit, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. you know, like, yeah even all through the dictatorship, it was the same refrain. So it's not not shocking or surprising that they would want to pull on that because that, like I said, it's a, yeah. it's a hit and it's yeah, exactly. easy to, it's easy to use to scare people. And you don't, and, and like in the United States, you don't necessarily have to say very much. You can use coded language to refer like sort of a dog whistle. Exactly. To, you don't have to say the reds even, you can just say those people who are trying to bring up the past, you know, like, and then just leave it at that, <laughs> yeah. you know, like the, the one Vox um, rally I went to, as I was telling you before, um, was right after Franco was exhumed. All they said was, and these, this, these groups who just want to bring up the past all the time, we want to talk about the future, you know, like, and it got wild applause, but it wasn't explicit. Like, yeah. if you didn't know what they were talking about, you might be like, what? <laughs> yeah. Like, but it's it's so part of the, the socialization and the background and like it's so in the fabric you don't have to really do much work and it, it buys you so much so yes. i'm not shocked by that it's i mean different but the same here in the united states yeah yeah exactly um i mean i guess it is interesting at the same time yeah i mean this idea of the I think uh, Helen Graham talks about like the grandchild's gaze or the, you know, and mm -hmm. that it is the younger generations, you, you, you know, you even talk about in your book to sort of, it's not even just the grandchildren, it's the great grandchildren. Mm -hmm. There is, there is at the same time. I mean, I, I talk to, you know, just people who aren't very political, but 
you know, this is this is their family background. This is where, you know, this is what they've been brought up, been told about. And there is a hunger to um, to learn more about their own personal case and then also to consume, I guess, you know, um, I'm thinking about films like Parallel Mothers and think there is an interest and, you know, it's... And I think that's reflective of the, the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren, you know, they're like our age. You know, they yeah. didn't weren't born anywhere close yeah. to this. They weren't raised with this being this intense fear and like being socialized with you don't ever talk about this and so there's not that same like oh I shouldn't talk about this outside because it could get us in trouble or it'll destroy the family or even like so much the not as much of the like this is shameful you know like there's so many young people would come to these exhumations and say I've never heard of this I had no idea there were this many graves I had no idea this was around the corner or like oh my god what like I just saw a body (laughs) And yeah. then this, their interest would be really peaked. And so like, I think generally, like generationally, there isn't that same terrifying fear. It's more curiosity. And like I said before, curiosity tends to trump uh, ideology, in lack of a better phrase. Um, it supersedes ideology. They want to know more. And I think also there's this sense of intergenerational obligation. So if you are the descendant of someone who was a, uh, similarly executed and buried alongside a highway of like, well, then they shouldn't be there. We should get them out. You know, yeah. like, I'm not afraid of the government. I'm, I trust the democracy. We're in the EU. Like, I was raised in an entirely different Spain. I want my great-grandfather to be buried respectfully. I have the story in my book about a, a pair of cousins that had no idea that this grandfather existed until the association found him while they were looking for someone else and were like, hey, do you want him? And they were like so into it. They flew out to this part of Spain. Um, they came out, they were just like people from the village who showed up randomly were like, oh, I knew your grandfather. They were like, what? You know, so they were like, so, and they're like, oh my God, tell us everything. And they were so interested. And when we found, he had these beautiful um, Art Deco cufflinks that he mm-hmm. died with. And when we found them, you know, we showed them to the, to the, the grandsons and they were just like oh wow like this is how we get to know our grandfather this is how we're going to take this home and we're going to have him with us and like what a beautiful remembrance so it's like a very different like they were shielded from the violence by never learning about this person okay and then the exhumation introduced them to a part of their family they didn't run from it they like ran towards it and wanted to know more and weren't ashamed of any way they they felt obligated to a person they never met or even heard of until like a month before yeah, <laughs> to go and get his body and have it be buried respectfully. Exactly. And I think that's very, very, very different for people who were raised during the dictatorship or in the immediate aftermath. It's just a very different reality that they carry. And I think that's what the far right wants to speak to is like they, they revel in the fear. I think most fascist movements are fear-based. They're reactionary. Yeah. They're trying to tell you who to be scared of and that the only way that you can be safe is through their rule. If you don't have the fear, it doesn't work. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think we, I wrote a piece on on the historical memory law last last year with um, Tom Wardle. And one of the people we talked to for this was, he was the the brother of, of one of the sort of victims of the transition. His, his brother had been, been shot in Plaza de la Luna in, in Madrid by an Argentinian fascist working working with the police 
I don't know. For me, it's 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 always stuck because every time I walk by that that square, there there is a monument to him. But it's I don't know if you know the story, but it's it's the um, the plaque. None of the buildings, the the owners of half the buildings, including the the police station, are are some Francoist proper, property group, and they were they refuse to allow the plaque to be put on any of the buildings. And so the the plaque in Plaza de Luna is is on the the air duct for an underground car park in the center, and it's. For me, it's yeah, it, you know, he's, you know, wow. he he had fought he had fought for a long time to get this when Manuela Carmena was the mayor of Madrid. She could, I think, in the last months of her term, they decided to put it on the air vent because they couldn't get an agreement from any of the the uh, local property owners. And so, you know, I mean, for someone like that who's just been, I think, I, you know, he talks about that. I think, you know, he he didn't do much. His family felt very fearful after the transition. They didn't push his brother's case. And it's yeah. only been in the in, in sort of more recent decades he he's been been sort of he's since retiring he's thrown himself into it. There there is a certain you know even still I guess that sort of sense of being a, a second class victim in that sense. Um, Absolutely, I mean that's it just makes me it's like oh god you know like yeah. they put it on an air like it's there is so many monuments around Spain. Yeah, yeah, um, and it. I, I guess to me, the thought there was like, it's so punitive and it's still yeah. so punitive yeah. after so many years. Like, would it, I mean, like, would it kill you to let them put up the family, put up a plaque? Like yeah, this exactly. person lost their life, yeah. Yeah. you know, like, um, I'm blanking on where it is. The one with the lawyers, the, the oh, lawyer. The, um, yeah. The Atocha, like, no, the yes, Kaya Atocha. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. um, you it know, a, there was this, yeah massacre of lawyers exactly yeah. fascist forces he was killed and- he was killed he was killed the same week that was the, the whatever the week they call it in, during the transition in madrid yeah um, exactly um yeah. and like i used to live over there and, and just walking by it and being like it's interesting none of them have the statues are like a, a group of huddled men you can't yeah. see their faces there you know and the building that they were all killed in is across the street and it's just like that's right they're all nameless faceless victims of the state you know that were of people who were just just like the people who fought on the, for the second republic they're just trying to fight for democracy yeah. which is something that I, I kind of feel like a current democracy should perhaps maybe be proud of you know <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and i think that's where you get into the like sort of underbelly of like you still want to punish you want to punish the other side forever yeah and that it to me is like not emblematic of democracy or of reconciliation of the past. And if you want, fine. It's kind of how I feel like about here in the United States with the the Confederacy of like, just wanting to hold up Robert E. Lee without any context of like, he was a traitor who lost. And like, a lot of people died because of those decisions, you know, like, put a sign, you know, I don't know if you know the story of San Marcos up in Leon, which is a five star hotel off oh, yes. of the Camino de Santiago. Yes, no, I I passed it when I did the Camino. Yeah, the, where was it? Zapatero's grandfather was held there, I think. Yeah, and it was Maybe, a concentration yeah. camp. Yeah, yeah exactly. And now you can stay in it as a yeah. hotel. Yeah. Um, and and somebody, a German, found that out, got really mad, and sued them, and they won, and the money oh, wow. went to the association. But what part of the agreement? was that they had to put a little sign, which I'm going to, you're going to love how they wrote it. It was like, this building's had many histories. Oh, <laughs> and it was like, it was this, it was that. At one point it was in concentration camp. Anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, and then I think that really sums up how a lot of this is done in Spain. There's an air duct 
memorial, there's a tiny plaque outside of a repurposed concentration camp, you know. I mean, that's it. I mean, at the same time, yeah, you meet these people who've, I mean, you know, you can only have admiration for them who've been struggling for so long and, you know, this clear sense of, of you know, of justice and what they want, for, you know, protect the memory of their their, their loved ones, etc. Yeah, and I think bringing it back to, I think your first question about Spain is sort of an exceptional case because of the, the amount of time that's happened yeah. in between. But then I, I would argue that like, to me that that is just suggestive of like, no matter what the state tries, there are some wounds that are so deep. And like when the social fabric is so ripped apart, it reverberates so long. And, and people don't forget no matter how hard you try to force them to. And I would, you know, refer back to, again, in my own country, with we're still fighting the Civil War, mm. which ended in 1865. Yeah. And those wounds were so deep. Like I said, we are still fighting it, and we're still dealing with the long, shattering effects of slavery being repurposed into mass incarceration. Yeah. You know, like, these things cast long shadows. And I think that's, like, the one takeaway, one of the takeaways is like state terror leaves a mark no matter what. And you can't just will it into people into forgetting how painful it is to live through a civil war, to live through a dictatorship that's executing people in mass. You know, it's, it's a terror that goes intergenerational. You know, I think it would be so interesting if, you know, psychologists wanted to take up the like epigenetics of trauma in countries like Spain, you know, like what did that do to the victims' families, to even the non-victims' families? Because people who live under authoritarianism are mostly just trying, everyone's just trying to live their little lives yeah. and will do what they have to do to survive. Even if it means disassociating from the fact that like, the regime is torturing people or executing them into the 70s, you know, like mm. in the case of Spain, yeah. that's it leaves just an, an incredible mark that goes on for a really, really long time. And I think you actually continue that by f trying to force people to forget. It's yeah. like a, it's very Freudian. Actually, I'm trying, I guess what I'm saying, you're sublimating it. It's going to come back. Yeah. Well, look, that was great. No, um, thanks a lot. A really, really fascinating interview. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.